Well, this has been quite a week here in uh, Pasadena and in our area. Uh, I had uh, jury duty all week and will continue to have it. That's a fascinating experience. I tell you, um, you see more things happening out here in our city than I see when I'm hidden up in my little office cubicle or even in this big cubicle here in the... uh, And it really makes me think about God planning us here. So that's been going on. Also, I I was really proud this week because many of us here, I'm guessing all of us, and all around the world on Monday watched with huge excitement as NASA's INSIGHT All right, INSIGHT. You know what that stands for? Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy, and Heat Transport. I'm glad we call it INSIGHT, just to let you know. As it uh, landed, successfully touched down on Mars, which you know how hard that is, after almost a seven-month, 300-mile journey from Earth. Now, this INSIGHT project is managed by JPL, And the Mars Cube 1, Marco, CubeSats, the first CubeSats to fly into deep space, and which served as, you know, the communications relay during the landing, they were built right here, Pasadena JPL. And we have a lot of folks in our church who are at Caltech and JPL and NASA. And I just want you to know as your pastor, I am proud of you in a spiritual sort of way. You know, so... This is a huge accomplishment, and to all of you who are associated either directly or indirectly, it's just a wonderful thing. With that um, sort of joyous announcement, we've also had other things happen. One is Betty Folks, who's been a long, long time pillar of this church. She was the first woman to be on our ministry council. She was the first woman to chair a search committee, sort of a pioneer here at Lake. She passed away on Friday morning. She, I miss her already, and uh, to her and to John and to the folks' family, we know she is in a better place by far, and we will wait to see her again. In fact, the hope of that happening is what we're going to be talking about uh, here today. So, we're going to begin Advent right now, first Sunday, and what we're going to be doing this year is a bit different. We're going to be looking at a story of someone before Jesus came, whose life will sort of show us the need for us to have someone come and rescue us and to save us. And then we're going to look at the words of Jesus to see how he actually fulfills those deep human needs. So let's stand together because we are going to be hearing our Father's word. Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to chapter 3, verse 31. I've just taken the story of Eve out of those texts, and this is what we hear. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. Adam and his wife Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Uh, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Now let's move forward to near the end of Jesus' life, looking back on his life, thinking about why he's come. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. This is the words of Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is the Word of God. Uh, You may take a seat. Jesus came into a manger. Jesus came into this world to meet our deepest human needs. Do you believe that? That's what we're going to be thinking about this this Advent season. And we're going to be doing it together with churches all around the world. Because all around the world, they're stopping to think about what actually happened in this manger. What what does it do in, in this world? And churches throughout the world and throughout much of history have taken these four Sundays before we celebrate Christmas to think about the way that Jesus is coming actually addresses the, the needs we most desperately have. Like what, you might ask? Like the need for hope and its frequent cause, which is loss. The need for peace, and its opposite, which is an unfulfilled longing. Uh, The need for joy, and its counterpart, emptiness. And the need for love, which might be the greatest one of all, right? 
and in its absence, alienation. Now, now the question I've had is, if we're going to be thinking about Jesus coming into this world actually meets those kinds of needs, in what way does he do that? And how do we find out the answer to that? So, you know, my natural muscle has become, in recent years, when I have any kind of a question, I sort of pull out my uh, iPhone and I ask Siri. So I ask, I ask her or it or whatever Siri is, uh, Siri, something like this, uh, where is a good Italian restaurant? And she will always do a good job of telling me an answer. Uh, uh, me Piace, which is owned by a Lake Avenue person, so I'm, I mentioned, I'll just mention those things. So we could say, or something like that. She does a good job of answering those sorts of uh, questions in our lives, but she doesn't do so well at answering this kind of big existential question. H how does the manger and Jesus being born there actually answer my deep inner need for hope in my life. Well, she doesn't do that all that well, but I have found that other women do a better job. Other women whose life stories are found right here in the Bible. And so that's what we're gonna be doing this year. I'm gonna be looking at a number of the significant women in the Bible, who when you look at their life stories, they so poignantly point out the needs that we have as, as human beings. And then I'm going to be able to pull up to Jesus talking to us. At the end of his life, looking back on his life, looking forward to what his death and resurrection will accomplish, and he speaks into the fact that he has come specifically for that to meet our deepest human needs. So on this first Sunday of Advent, we're looking at hope. So I'm going to go over and light this first candle of Advent, the hope candle. Hmm. There we go. Uh, Jesus, the light of the world, came into this world, and when we feel the darkness, when things seem so hopeless to us, I'm going to think about whether he actually brings light into that darkness. So I'm going to start with this message with hope with the uh, Bible's first lady, uh, Eve. So Eve's story, when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, ends with it looking awfully hopeless. And this is what we read. After the Lord God drove the people out of paradise, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree. Now, here's what I want you to do. I don't know if you can do this. I want you to think about Eve in a way that we often don't do it in church. We often think about Eve with the questions of human beginnings and origins, or if, you, if you've been studying theology as I have, you have some people think about Eve as a metaphor for this or that. I want you to think about Eve in the way the Bible talks about Eve, as a real human being. I want you to think about her as a woman and what she experienced in what I read to you earlier. Because when we first meet Eve, I'm telling you, she was a woman who had everything. Think about it. I just jotted a few things down. She had a home in the best location that ever existed on earth, paradise. She had a marriage in which she was side by side with her husband, absolutely adored by him. I tried to read the text so you could hear that. Chapter 2, verse 23, when Adam sees her for the first time, this is what he says, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If we'd say that, we'd say, now this is what I'm talking about. 
I've seen all these other things that you've made here, God. This, this is what I really want to have. And, and she was taken out of his side, chapter 2, verse 15, and called an Ezra, a help, what God has called somebody to do life with him, taken out of his side, not out of his foot. They were going to be walking side by side. Uh, and he was thrilled. Because Adam looked around and he knew there was no one and nothing else in this world like her. She also uh, had a life of inner wholeness because in that paradise, God was with her, walked with her, talked with her. Uh, Her life, the Bible says at the end of Genesis 2, was everything was right out there in the open and there was no shame. But she lost it all. And you might know, you know the story, don't you? She, she threw it away for a piece of fruit. Uh, this serpent somehow was able to come up and convince her that there was still something really missing in her life. That the God who'd made her and given her everything to, to, to walk with him and to obey him, that's going to keep her from experiencing something that was good that he didn't want her to have. And somehow she, did, she believed the serpent rather than God. She disobeyed, she distrusted him. And the loss that she experienced, loss which just so many times when it happens to us leads to hopelessness. For us, it was catastrophic and devastating. Uh, Her life of inner wholeness with no shame was broken. As you look at chapter three, verses seven to nine, immediately after she'd said, and and heard God coming, she, she looked at her husband and said, we're naked. And they went and found fig leaves to try to close themselves. What kind of clothes are those? And she hid from God in the bushes and in the trees. She was so desperately ashamed of what had happened. Her her relationship to her husband, too, was disrupted. Instead of him praising her, he blamed her. He goes to God and says, this woman that you gave me, she's the one who caused me to do this. And actually, uh, the, the punishments that God, the consequences of her actions that God gave to her hit right at the heart of their marriage relationship. Uh, there would be pain in childbirth. Uh, and this phrase, your desire, verse 16 of chapter 3, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That, that was a Hebrew idiom for a power struggle in a human relationship where there's no longer the kind of trust that you walk side by side together. It's like if we put it into our way, when you stand at the altar, you say, I will love you and cherish you until death parts us. No longer is it going to be to love and to cherish, but it will be to desire and dominate. When you read that kind of language, I just got to tell you, this is not the way God originally intended for our relationships to be. This is what happened because of sin. And this is one of the things we've got to ask, can Jesus change this? And of course, she lost her home too. She and her husband were banished from paradise, that place of belonging, that that place where they met God. Now, um, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know she still had one big hope in front of her, that she might be able to have children. Uh, In the ancient world, that was the big, big thing, to be able to have children brought hope back into your life. And we're gonna see that in the coming weeks. For her, she was able to have children. But do you know that story, what happened to those children? One of her sons killed the other. Cain Cain killed Abel. Now, think about it with me, my brothers and sisters. Some of you here, like Chris and me, have lost a child. Is there anything that breaks your heart more than that? Unless it would be this, 
that in your own family, among your children, one of your children rejects your values, does the kind of things that absolutely are wrong, the thought of how she must have felt when she lost a child and she had the other son kill her own child. I'll tell you, I I just read her life. I try to put myself in her shoes, all of this loss, one thing after another. Must have left Eve feeling hopeless, maybe even despair. And yeah, I've got to show you something. There are two indicators that God was not done with Eve yet. It's almost hallelujah time. He wasn't done with it yet too. Chapter three, verse 15. One of her offspring, she was told by God, would someday crush the head of that evil servant. And number two, even maybe more beautiful, chapter three, verse 21, God himself provided her with better and more lasting clothing, (laughs) something better than fig leaves. I'll tell you, these things, aren't they just powerful demonstrations that this majestic and holy God still cared for Eve? had not given up on her, even though she had distrusted him and even though she had failed. I'll tell you, I read this. I don't know how you read it, but I've tried to show it to you. When I read the story of Eve, it just speaks to me about our deep, deep need for hope to be restored. It seemed like she'd never be able to get back there, those those angels, whatever those cherubim were and that flashing swords back. She'll, I'll never get back what I've lost. And yet is all hope lost? That's the question of this first Sunday of Advent. And that brings us to the coming of Jesus. Now, in thinking about Jesus, we're going to come to a verse we'll probably come to quite often at Advent. John chapter 10, verse 10, in which Jesus said, I have come for this reason, that you won't stay in hopelessness. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So I see the story of Eve takes us to the manger and why it is that Jesus actually come. And, and it makes me ask the question, does Jesus' coming into this world actually provide what is needed to meet that, that need we have for renewed hope? And to answer that, I want us to pull back to that other text that I read, found in John chapter 14. Actually, all the way from John chapter 13 to John chapter 16, we have this what's called a farewell discourse. It's just before Jesus went to the cross. He gathered his 12 disciples there beside him, and he just talked to them about the most important things. He helps us to look back to why he had done what he had done before and what is going to happen because of his death and resurrection. But I'm not so sure that these men at the point that he gave this to them were were really ready to hear it because I'll tell you, if you think about these men the way I ask you to think about Eve, namely to think about the disciples as just real men living in this world, The thing you see in these men is that they too, like Eve, had experienced loss after loss after loss. When Jesus called them, they'd followed. And yet what had happened? They lost the respect of their families, often cut off from their families because they followed this Jesus. Who is that? They they lost their homes often. They lost their jobs and their occupations. Any of you who have lost jobs, you know how devastating that can be, right? And... By John chapter 12, when you read the whole story, they found it in John chapter, by John chapter 12 that all of their community leaders rejected Jesus, and so the, they would be rejected too, and their religious leaders had rejected Jesus too. So when you look at it, they had nothing. 
Uh, they'd expected so much more. They had, oh, you might say, oh, pastor. They still had Jesus. That'll preach, won't it? You lose everything else, you still have Jesus. That's good. Do you know what it says in John chapter 13? Jesus turns to them and he says, I am leaving too. Can you feel it? Can you put yourself in their shoes? I, I read this thing and I think they were devastated. But when you read the words of Jesus in John 14, 1, where he turned to them and he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. <laughs> it might have just made them angry because that's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear him stay. What do you do when you've lost everything and you don't see how you can get back there and ever have it again? Maybe, maybe you've come to church feeling that way even today. So we see two of the men, Peter, when he hears it. He, he was sort of the take charge guy. Well, you might have to do this for everybody else, but I, you don't have to do it for me, Jesus. And so he says, Lord, you don't have to lay down your life for me. I tell you what, I'll do it. I'll lay down my life for you. Uh, do you. Do you feel the irony of this? Uh, Jesus, okay. Jesus had to lay down his life for the forgiveness of Peter's sins. If Peter had been the one who laid down his life, he would have no eternal hope. Do you, do you see it? If, if we would even begin to think that Peter could die in the place of Jesus, there'd no, be no hope for you and me here today either. And yet, Peter just couldn't admit his, his weakness. I, I wonder whether there wasn't sort of a, an understanding smile on the face of Jesus when he reflects back Peter's words to him, and he says, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you, before the, the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. After three years of being with Jesus, Peter still had a lesson he had to learn. It's a lesson he had to learn. It's a lesson you and I have to learn if we're ever really going to find the hope of Christ. I've written it right here. To Eve, who lost everything, to Peter and to us. God doesn't use those who have never failed or who think we've never failed. Or maybe more for us who come to, to Lake Avenue Church who try to pretend that we've never failed. Other people need it, we don't. Jesus doesn't love us for what we can do for him. I'll tell you, Jesus loves you and me in spite of the fact that we are ragged and we are weak and we fail. Jesus must die for us if we're going to find hope. Well, let's move on here. We've got Thomas, too. You know his story? We call him the doubter. I call him the angry agnostic. The word agnostic means don't know. I, we just don't know. And so that's what Jesus says. Um, uh, you know where I'm going, and you know the way. And, and Thomas turns to him and says, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Now, I've got to tell you how I read Thomas. It's so easy to be critical of Thomas. Everybody calls him Doubting Thomas, and he, he's always put down. But actually, I, I see him as sort of being my, my good... I lived in Germany for a while, you know, the Northern Germans. Uh, I see some of my German friends even here. Northern Germans are known to just speak straight to you. And I always liked that. They didn't hide, I didn't ever wonder what they thought because they'd tell me what they thought. That's how I see Thomas. I think everybody else was thinking what Thomas thought, but none of them had the courage to say it. <laughs> Jesus, this is not what we expected. 
This, this, this is not what, what, what we had, that you'd indicated was going to happen to us. Now, now listen, Thomas was wrong. Jesus had clearly told Thomas repeatedly where he was going. He was going through death to the, to the, to the Father. And he told him the way that he could get there too. Thomas, you find it through faith in me. But Thomas, though he believed in God, did not really know who Jesus was, not fully. Perhaps the worst part of Thomas's uh, response was the blaming. You didn't tell us well enough, Jesus. You haven't told us what we need to know. We thought you were going to set up a kingdom. We thought that in following you, we'd get to Jerusalem. We'd get power. We'd get wealth. It's your fault that we're struggling. Um, now, here's the part I'm interested in. It's what I'm interested in when I read Eve after her failure and what I'm interested in when I read about uh, Thomas's failure. Namely, how does Jesus treat us when, when we're even angry and have accusations and, and disown him in the ways that we see happening here? Does he just write us off and give us no way to come back to him? And I'll tell you, it's one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture, the way that Jesus deals with Thomas. Chapter 14, verse 6, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When I read this, do you see it? Jesus is not casting him off or saying there's no hope for you. He speaks calmly but clearly in response to Thomas's angry and unbelieving accusation. It's clear to me that Jesus still loved Thomas in spite of his anger. But at the same time, all that compassion and respect for Thomas didn't keep him from speaking the truth into his life, and we have to do this. And so this angry accusation of Thomas draws forth one of the most powerful statements in the entire Bible. Thomas, you old Eeyore. That, that's how I think. <laughs> Woe is it. Thomas, you old Eeyore. I, I tell you, Thomas, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I know where I'm going. And I'm going there for you. I'm doing it for you. Thomas, I am the way the truth, and the life. You can't get to the Father unless I do what I do now. No one can. I'm sure that Thomas didn't really want to hear that. <laughs> but it is what he most needed. And you see, that's what this series of messages is about. What we most need is a hope, and this time a hope of salvation, that, that we'll be able to be with him forever, that there is a future for us, and look again at chapter 14, verse 6, what Jesus said. I don't want you to miss this. What, what Jesus did, does here, he substitutes places that he talked about before with people. No longer does he talk about the Father's house. He talks about the Father. No, no longer does he talk about himself as sort of the one who can show the way. He talks about himself as being the way. And what I see Jesus saying to, Peter is this, uh, to Thomas is this, listen, Thomas, if you find it hard to understand what's going on when everything is going wrong, then you've got to think of me. You've got to think in terms of a person, a person you know. Think of being with me. Think about whether you can trust me. Because right now, Thomas, you're not going to be able to understand everything I'm going to be doing. You can't know all the details. Your problem is that you don't know me. You don't trust me yet. Trust 
me, Thomas, for I will be your way to hope and to the future. Now, I've told you about this perhaps too often in my 11 and a half years here, but this is the text that I was going to be preaching about the week after our second daughter, Chris and my second daughter, died. I remember on the Sunday evening after she passed away, I, I sat down and I was reading this text, seeing it again, and I heard essentially in reading through it, though I, I've never been in a, in a more hopeless pain-filled time in my entire life than I was that evening. But I really heard Jesus essentially saying to me, Greg, you don't understand everything that's happening and you never can and never will. But you know me, and now the question is, do you trust me? I know what I'm doing. I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for Chris. And I'm doing it for your little daughter, Brittany, too. Trust me. Boy, when somebody says that to you, you have a decision to make, don't you? You got to decide whether that person is worthy of your trust or not, right? It's kind of like if somebody's selling you a car and the thing won't even turn on, and he says, just trust me, it's okay, it's just fine. You got to make a decision. Is that person trustworthy? And I remember getting down on my knees that night and just saying, will I actually trust Jesus when I can't make any sense out of a child dying? And I decided, yes, I will trust him. And it's made all the difference in my life. It's what makes it possible for me to still be your pastor here so many years later. I was talking with my daughter, Heather, who now has three children of her own about this. And then she wrote me back this message. She said to me, one of the biggest, most life and faith-altering moments in my life was when Noel, her second child, developed a grapefruit-sized mass on her ovary. She was only four years old and was in the hospital in agony because we couldn't control the pain. We had to rush her in for emergency surgery. My biggest fear in life is losing one of my kids. So my natural response is usually one of terror, and Chris and I can affirm that's true of her. <laughs> then I put this up here so you can see it. She wrote this for me. That evening, I sat alone in the waiting room thinking that I could lose Noel, and I asked myself, you tell high schoolers, she works with high school students, you tell high schoolers that they should trust God all the time. Do you really believe that God is who he says he is? And I realized that yes, I do. I chose to trust him. When I did, I found the hope I most needed, knowing that even if the worst happened, God would be who he is and do what he does. He would sustain us and lift us up. And he did. You and I should be able to understand this message better than Eve did or, or Peter or Thomas. They, they heard these words before the, the big triumph was to come before the resurrection of Jesus that shows he even has power over death, because the way that Jesus would have to go through a painful cross bearing our sins was not the way they would have to go. It's not the way we have to go. He is our way. His way is not ours. He is our way. And because Jesus was born in a manger, 
and then he was willing to go to the cross, he becomes the way back to God for all who trust in him. Now, just think about it. I mean, he defeated sin through his sinless life. And he offers that to us because he's willing to die in our place. And then he defeated death by his resurrection. So I declare to you that it is he, it is Jesus, who is our hope no matter what we lose in this world. He will never be taken from us. So I'll say today to Eve, to Peter, to Thomas, and to all of us, the answer is clear. If there hadn't been a manger, if if Jesus had not been born, the head of that evil serpent and all of the sin that he brought into this world would not have been crushed. All of this is why you and I need a manger. Jesus, out of love for us, lived, died, and rose again. And what Jesus offers to us in this often, what seems like a hopeless world, is himself as the one who is worthy of trust and the one who can restore our hope. And what he says to you today, if you feel that you've come to church today in a hopeless situation is this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing, and I'm doing it for you. Trust me. Trust Jesus. And I tell you, he will renew your hope, and it will be to his glory. Amen. Amen. Don't you think that this message leads us to the cross and to remember what Jesus did? He spoke this, I think, just after he had had that meal with his disciples where he told them, until I come back again, because that's what he's going to do. I mean, we still feel, live in those times of loss, don't we? But we're people who think about a second coming. <laughs> Jesus is going to come, and in that second advent, then all those things that make the world hopeless will be taken away. Uh, But we still wait for that. And until then, we have to learn to trust him too. And until that time comes, that he comes uh, back again, he has told us to do this, to remember how much he loves us, uh, to the point that he was willing to give his life in our place, Uh, to remember that even though he experienced death, the grave could not hold him. And so because he is risen, uh, there is always hope no matter what we have done, no matter what we have experienced, to remember it until he comes again. And so, that's what we're going to do now. If you're visiting with us, this is his table. This is the Lord's table. If you know the Lord Jesus and you're wanting to walk with him, uh, then we want you to come. And the way we do it here at Lake is we get out from where we're seated. We come up to our tables. We have some up at the balcony. We have some here in the middle. Uh, you take the elements, which is, is bread, because Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave it to them as a symbol of his body. And then we take the cup because he took the wine. He says, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. So we come and take those two elements and then take them back to our seats. Because I'm telling you, this is what knits us together. Male, female, young, old, every tribe, language, nation. 
we find hope because of what Jesus did, the way that he took through the cross for us. So we're going to remember that together. Um, if you have a gluten allergy, you can go all the way over to the tree. That last table over there has gluten-free elements. So let us come. If you can't get out of your seat, our stewards will bring up to you the elements. And then I'll come back and we'll receive and rejoice together in the love of Jesus shown on the cross.